0: Okay, this morning we're going to read from uh, several different chapters. And uh, so what we're going to talk about this morning is where we have our rest. Where we have our rest is where God is resting, and it has to do with what in the Bible is called the burnt offering. The burnt offering. And we're going to see it in its type and in its finality, where it was actually finished in time, and that was, of course, on the cross of, of Calvary. And that would go into these amazing truths that, that we need to to understand and continue to grow in of propitiation, substitution, and reconciliation, and the fact of what that substitution and reconciliation went into. Many, 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 many different things. Anyways, here we are in Genesis, the second chapter. Now, we know based upon Genesis chapter Two in verses 1 through 3, we know this when it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. This is the act of God the Son in his pre-incarnate state recreating the earth and the heavens around it. But it goes into types too because we see that in God's eternal mind, we know that the heavens for us as believers that are in Christ based upon the epistle to Ephesians, especially, and to some in Colossians, that we are a heavenly people. And that so everything in terms of the heavens, in in terms of the type and opposition is finished, and then the earth. And we know with, with some of the recent teachings that we've had about prophecy, prophecy has to do with the earth and what God is going to accomplish and set up in finality the very kingdom of Christ. So... That's what it's teaching here. Not only here in Genesis one, one through, in Genesis one, one through thirty-one, we will see that. But we also know this in the type that all was finished, and then it says, "In all the host of them." Then we see this in in verse two of Genesis two, and on the seventh day God ended. And notice this: it's His work; He ended it. Seven, obviously, is a number that we have for completion. The seventh day was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's when the church actually began. And it's known as, so Sunday, really, in all actuality, as far as the eternal mind of God is and his word, is the first day of the week. The last day of the week is Saturday. That was a Sabbath day that hadn't been yet finished, which would go into all the teachings about the uh, 10 Commandments and all the types and ordinances. But here it says, on the seventh day, God ended his work. Notice what it says, which he made, which he made. What Christ accomplished on Calvary was his making. We didn't have a thing to do with it. Even in Psalm 95 and verse 6, when he's talking to Israel and he's declaring them to be their shepherd, they are his sheep, they did not make themselves, but he did. This all has to do with what we'll learn about the burnt offering this morning. So it says then, the works which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. He set it apart. This is amazing truth and we're going to see when we get into this this morning, the amazing truths that this is teaching us this morning, that he sanctified it. He set it apart. It was, it was completely and totally set apart from Him for him. Sanctified. And that's what we are in Christ. In John 17, 17, in Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer, he said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So, truth is Christ in John 14 and verse 6. And, and your word is truth. Sanctify them in your, in your truth. And he's the word in John 1 and verse 1. And so, he set it apart. Because in it, it says, in it, this finished work, he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now this is the Sabbath, and here it's the the, the Sabbath, but here it's the Sabbath, and what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath always has to do with the rest of God. It's where he rests. He rests in the Son of his love. Zephaniah, Zephaniah 3 and verse 17 says he rests in his love, and he rests in the love of his Son where he's placed us in Colossians 1. And verse 13, he has set us apart, sanctified us. Sanctification has to do with being set apart from the old and set into the new. See, nothing of the old has a single thing to do with the new that Jesus Christ, by God the Father, and the power of the Holy Spirit, has made us. That's why in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right, when it says in verse 10, we are his workmanship, something that he has made us to be. And so it always, the Sabbath always has to do with the rest of God. That rest of God, we see, the the rest of God was connected with the manna sent down. And we know in type that was Christ. Exodus, the 16th chapter, brings out, while they were in the wilderness, that they would feed on the manna that came down. They would get up every single morning, and the first thing they would do was partake of the manna. They would partake of it. They would feed on the word that Christ is. That's brought out, again, Christ brought it out in John the sixth chapter in verses 30 to 57 where he says that he was that manna in that type that he fulfilled, he came down. That's why it says in John three in verse 27, can a man receive anything except it come from heaven? And that's with the manna. It came down. So we know that God's rest, his Sabbath rest, is connected with the manner Christ, that was sent down. Again, yeah, we see it in Exodus, the 16th chapter. It's in the 4th verse, the 8th verse, and then verses 14 and 15. And, of course, we said those types that were in John uh, 3.27 and John the 6th chapter. But with that, with that, with Israel, there was always a conflict with Amalek, at the waters of Rephidim. Now, Rephidim, we see that in Exodus, the 17th chapter, in verses 8 to 16. And this is why tremendous amount of concentration is needed, because when we have this kind of teaching, when we have this kind of teaching that God is redeeming the time in our lives this morning, this is what he's doing. He's redeeming the time in our lives, and that's why we need the utmost concentration. Utmost because it's extremely important for God to fill in all those areas where growth is needed and which has to do with grace and knowing Christ in us and knowing who we are in him. And that's why it takes this, it is tremendous concentration that we need. And so Amalek was there. Amalek is the type of the flesh. God gives us the water of the word and then instantly, when we're refreshed, instantly who comes around? Who comes right around? Amalek. Amalek. Now, Rephidim was a place in the desert, but it was a place where the water was given, the water of refreshment, the water of the word in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. It's a place in the desert. And we are in this world system, we are in this worldly system, in this desert, where there is still support. And God spreads us a table and gives us the support that we have and thank God that we have this, this place of the local assembly where we, as the body of Christ assemble the word church ecclesia. He's taken us out of the world and, and in, not out of the world in terms of our position and true, our true experience, so that we have he, that we have Christ as the head in Colossians 1.18 and 2.19. And this is what happens, and this is what takes place in the body of Christ. This is exactly what takes place here. So every Christian, though, each of us, every single Christian, all of us, will more or less painfully, and it depends, the more pain or less pain has to do with what? When the word is given, we have a choice to receive it or reject it. It has to do with the will. So depending on the strength and resistance or in treatability of the will, the pain will be greater or lesser. But every one of us has to learn that. We have to learn what our own heart is, what our own mind and emotions are, apart from Christ. This goes into that separating, sanctifying process. Because sanctification always has to do with separation. That is exactly what it has to do with, a separating process constantly. Now, we've been separated positionally, but now through, through growth and through the word, it's to enter into an experience. We have this experience of it being separated through receiving, not resisting, but through receiving truth. That's what makes it so extremely important in relationships, especially in marriage, where the husband learns how to take initiation. It's not that the wife and the husband don't know certain things and agree, but always, in terms of submission, the husband initiates, the wife submits and receives in that process. Otherwise, the order is completely wrong. This is, goes into this in terms of marriage. Now, It's a separating process. That's why it says in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, the word of the Lord is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, separating of the soul, self-conscious living, where all the resistances and the rejection, from the spirit, the entreatability of the will submitted to Christ. And so we see the sanctifying, separating process in Hebrews, the fourth chapter and the twelfth verse. That's why it says in Exodus 11 and verse 7 that God always, not sometimes, but he always puts a difference between Egypt, those that live in the world, and Israel, those that are in Christ, in the type in that specific type so when we see this this morning and when we see it here and understand it here in this this great sanctifying separating process and again it says that in 1st Kings 18 and verse 21 where it says those that are on God's side you're to be over here those that are not are to be separated and that goes into that goes into all of our relationships And it goes into every. It affects every single relationship that we have, every single one of it, and and it's extremely important. So, again, the great object here, though, the great object lesson, and things thing that we're to learn is this: is to separate this from our justification. There's a lot of teaching that goes out there where the two don't happen. Once we've been justified, and remember what justification is, is we've been cleared of all guilt, condemnation, and every single sin. Not that we don't confess them. We're confessing what Christ has done about them in 1 John 1, 9. But what we need to learn is that we've been cleared of all guilt and condemnation. It is gone and gone forever. Ever. Ever. But we are growing in that truth experientially. So what we teach here is this, that sanctification, understanding sanctification, listen, where is God resting sabbath? What does the sabbath have to do that God was that God himself was propitiated. And we'll get into that this morning. And so there's where God is resting, he's resting in what his son has accomplished, and where do we rest? In his son of what he's accomplished to his Father in propitiation, and for us as a substitute, thereby we are reconciled now unto God, who is no longer a judge, (laughs) but a a, a loving Father, as brought out in John 20 and verse 17. So, But sanctification, since we've been cleared, justified, of all guilt and condemnation, since that's happened, and it has for us in Christ when we received him, then sanctification is in something that happens instantly, instantly. We were set apart from the old and set in Him. That's positional sanctification. But now there's got to be pro- progressive growth, experiential sanctification, which is based upon what was accomplished long before, long before any of us knew it, and we're growing in it, even to this moment right now, but but we see the need, we see the need to have that happen, because a lot of your false teaching from all kinds of different groups is fusing the two into one, that's why some think you can lose your salvation, because they make it one, they make it one, and they base their thoughts, their their. They base their thoughts on this, not upon God's thoughts, but they mix their thoughts with God's thoughts. and When you do that, it equals confusion. Because we know in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33 that Christ is our life and peace and there's no confusion in him. There's none. So that goes into, His sanctification simply means this, he's making us to become, in our experience, in our present condition, on earth, as he's already, past tense, made us to be in our position in Christ. This is what it's teaching. This is all the types of what it's teaching here. And so the great object, again, the great object is to separate this from our justification. Who is our great object? It's Christ. That's why it says in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, to look away from what? false teaching is what? It's what? It is a great what? Distraction. And when I'm distracted, what does it mean? I'm confused. I'm confused. I lose the fullness of Christ in my experience. So the great object here is to separate this from our justification. And that, listen, and that it should be a matter of judging the self-life in us, of which we're no longer not of expecting God's judgment on us because he put it on Christ and dealt with it. Now, we do make a proper judgment of that in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Yes, we do. And we make that. And that's what confession is in 1 John 1, 9. We're confessing. That was self. I did something that he paid for. It's not who he is, obviously, because he, he dealt with it. And furthermore, he never became sin. He became the sin sacrifice in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He definitely did that. He, he was that. He was the sin sacrifice. He never became sin. He became the sin sacrifice for sin. No question about that. And that's what we confess in 1 John 1, nine. We are confessing this, this absolute truth. We're confessing it. And it's not, again, a matter of judging ourselves. Because if it becomes that, then what do we do? We want Christ, we're asking God all over again to be propitiated. (laughs) When he was propitiated and it happened once, once in Hebrews 10.10, it happened once. And that's why when we function in that experientially, when my experience is the equal of my position, then I have a cleansed conscience in Hebrews 10.1 and 2, then all things become pure to the pure. All things are pure, we see them. How do I see evil in the purity of who I am in Christ? the only way I can see it. How, how, How do I know sin without being in his presence? And it means I don't sin in his presence, but in his presence I can clearly see what it is and then completely reject it. That's part of our confession in 1 John 1 and verse 9. So that's the great object. We should never expect God to judge us. No. The judgment is over. It's over for us. And it's just a matter of judging ourselves and not expecting God's judgment on us. Now, when this discovery of sin in us is made previous to any clear knowledge of the work of Christ, what goes with it habitually? Terror and despair. Terror and despair. A very intelligent intelligible effect because the cause is wrong, isn't it? And with every cause, there is what? There's an effect. And so, previous to that can be very difficult. But when after that knowledge of what's been accomplished to the Father in propitiation, for us as, his, as the substitute and thereby us being reconciled and understanding what love has accomplished on Calvary, when after that knowledge, the sin... Is is more deeply hated in a board, but it is not with terror. <laughs> Isn't that it's never with terror? There's no terror for us. Furthermore, that's why in Second Corinthians five ten, we're all to appear, and some have said it this way, and I love it. It's not the judgment seat of Christ. The word judgment there, even in the original Koine Greek, is bima, bema, b e m a, raised platform, and it's it's a bema seat. It's an evaluation and manifestation. Of rewards, some refer to it as the reward seat of Christ. There's no terror there. How did we get there? Christ called us. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride, and so there's going to be terror there. Some would very mistakenly connect Second Corinthians 5:10 with 5:11. That's where it says there, we persuade men of the terror. The terror is never, never at the reward seat of Christ. How did we get there? He called us there. How did we get there? We have perfect, glorified bodies instantly. (laughs) No trace of sin whatsoever. And furthermore, what is not, he's going to show us in his eyes which are as a flame of fire that consume. In Revelations 1 and verse 14, his eyes are as a flame of fire. We see it again in Daniel, the 7th and ninth chapters in there. And his eyes are as flame as a fire. All that was consumed. He's showing us what was consumed and not who we were. <laughs> That's past. Old things are passed away. In 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, behold, all things are new in him. Brand new, and there's no terror there. The terror will be at the great white throne judgment in Revelations 20, 11 to 15, those that never had their sins dealt with by receiving Christ, the fact that he propitiated the Father, rejecting the very means where the Father himself was propitiated, De- dealing with the sin question in John 1 and verse 29. And then, rejecting the substitute, paying where all those sins were placed upon. Did you know that the moment that you and I received Christ, the fact that he paid for all of our sins, did you know he not only died for us, he died as us, substitute, and he paid for all of our sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west in Psalm 103 in verse 12, who is like him? In 103 verse 10, who is like him? Nobody like him. And so what we see here is this, which is very, very important. It's not, when we have this knowledge, it never is a knowledge that is, has to do with terror. It's his love, so great love for us, God so loved, in John 3, verse 16. Herein is love, not that we loved him, but he loved us in 1 John 4, and verse 10. Now we love him. And loving him, in Psalm 97, and verse 10, we hate evil. All you that love hate evil. We hate it. What are we hating? What we are or what we're not. We're hating that evil of which we are not. Not. We're not. And so we see this in a very crystal clear way. We see this very, very, very clearly this. But can you imagine not knowing this truth when it's yours and the damage? No wonder the thief in John 10.10 comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Christ has come that they might have life, not only in themselves, but be able to enjoy it in an abundance with others in John 10.10b. And so can you imagine? All that would be if you don't have this, Okay? If you don't experience love, who Christ is, and what he's accomplished, what is left? It's fear. It's fear. When you function in fear, what motivates fear is pride. Now you're trying to do something which you and I in absolutely any way cannot do. What only his son done. that. His son did. That's why he had to come from heaven. He bridged the gap. God's perfect holiness and righteousness, his integrity, his justice, which was offended. Who could bridge that gap for any of us? And Christ did. He took away all the distance between us. There's no distance between God and us. That's why it says in Job 36 and verse 7, he never removes his eye from the righteous. And that's who we are. We have a right standing in him, based upon Romans 5, 1 and 2, and follow it all the way down to the 21st verse. So we see this, that it's not only terror, if we don't understand and experience this, it's terror. And is there any fear in love in 1 John 4, and verse 18? No. Why? Because as Christ is, so are we. We're to have boldness in the day of what? Judgment. Is that our day? No. Christ was our day on Calvary and he dealt with it. He dealt with it. There is no judgment for us because he took it upon him. And we see this clearly In we see this as a result. First, it had to be the burnt offering. That's why in John 8, 29, Romans 15, 3, he always did those things that pleased him. First and foremost. God first. And so then, then, all that would be, if we don't have this knowledge and experience it, would be what? Terror to what? Our, our condemnation. But is there any for us in Christ in Romans eight one? No. But you know what he brings in? We have, because based upon the new character that we, each of us have in Christ, we have a loathing condemnation of that sin itself, but not identifying ourselves with it. That's what confession does. It separates it. In 1 John 1. And verse nine. Now we turn to um, <clears throat> Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, it says in, in verse one, and it came to pass after these things that God did test. If you see tempt, cross it out. Put test. We know that God never tempts. Tempting has to do with evil. Something God never does. In James 1:12 and 13. To test Abraham, test his test his obedient faith and depending on Christ and nothing in himself or anyone else, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. You see, God speaks to us, doesn't he, individually, through his word? He does. It's very individual what he's accomplished for us in Christ. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, who was is a type of Christ, whom you love. And you love him. He's your firstborn. All the promises have to do with him. Everything about you is him. Now take him and get you to the land of Moriah and offer him for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. Notice how God spe- specific he is. He tells them where to go to have this knowledge known and experienced. He never leaves a, our choices up to ourselves because we're like sheep and we know what sheep do and the four things they can't do, they can't feed themselves, guide themselves, protect themselves or clean themselves. They can do none of those things. It's all up to him. So Abraham, notice this in verse 3, rose up early in the morning. Notice that. Early in the morning, and saddled his animal and took two of his young men, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son took the wood for the what? burnt offering. He rose up and went unto the place. Notice this. The place which God had told them, of course, our place is our proper image, and that's in Christ. That's why the book of Ephesians, some 86 times in that book, it's in something, in Christ, in him. Not in sin, not in sins, but we're in him positionally. Then on the third day, notice how it's the third day. What day did Jesus rise? He rose on the seventh day, the first day, a brand new week for us, a brand new life in him, unto the place. And he, the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, saw the place afar off. Abraham said unto his young man, Abide here with the, with the donkey, and I and the lad will go there and worship. And notice what he said, And come again to you. He said both of them were going to come again. See, he believed it. He believed it before it happened, but the, it still doesn't do, do away with the test of obedience. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on upon Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife and they went, both of them together. They were both operating in faith. Faith obedience had nothing to do with their feelings. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, Father, and he said, Here am I, son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide a lamb, provide himself a lamb for burnt offering. That's propitiation." dealing with the sin question. That happened between the Father and the Son. Furthermore, even the only, the only part we had on, on the cross of Calvary, which has to do with the altar, and again, that's brought out in Exodus 25, 17 to 22. The, our sins were on him. That's it. Period. So they both went of them together. They both agreed with the word of God. You can't go further with someone. You can't make them go. They can't make you go. But you can both go together. When you have one mind, that's what makes it vital in marriage with the initiation of a husband and the response of of the wife. It's very, very clear. And even things that need to be worked out, still, it's never apart from the husband initiating and the wife responding, not trying to take control in a situation, Even, even if there's not agreement in it. Don't ever give up initiation. Now, here, this has to do with bringing out, but God providing Himself a lamb for a burnt offering. This goes into expiation. Expiation. Expio in the Latin. And I don't want to get into it because it's pretty much a dead language, by the way. But it has to do with the word X, E, X, and P, O, and it literally means to worship. And to atone. You see, Christ, everything he did in his humanity was worshiping the Father. Literally giving glory to his nature. Glorifying it constantly in obedience. That's what obedience does with us. It glorifies him through Christ in us and us in Christ. It glorifies him when we function in obedience. Loving obedience, loving initiation, Initiation, loving response. Yes. To atone it means. It means to appease, to appease, to atone for it, for, for and it means to be merciful, to be propitiated, to make satisfaction, to make satisfaction. Of course. The father had to be satisfied with what the son was accomplishing before he could ever give him as a substitute for us so that we know how sure it is and how satisfied God is himself with his son that he gave to us as a sacrifice and as a substitute. And then we become reconciled to him and what? when I'm in Christ experiencing Christ who is my life, I experience what? A loving father. A very loving, merciful, highly satisfied father. And so, what does it mean? It means to extinguish the guilt of. The guilt of a crime. To extinguish it. And it's followed by subsequent acts of worship. And you know that has to do with love love always has to do with worship worship always has to do with love and who does that have to do with God in 1 John 4 8 and 16 is love he is love you see and so it's worship by which the obligation to punish the crime is cancelled he cancelled it in terms of responsibility and accountability on us and put it on his son in our place that's positional truth that's positional truth. That's Colossians 2, 14 and 15. So it means to expiate or to appease, to do away with, to extinguish guilt that is associated with crime as condemnation and to perform some act which is supposed to purify the person who is guilty. That's why we don't have any. There's no condemnation because there's no guilt about who we are in Christ. Again, in Romans 8, verse 1. And so the primary sense of being guilt-free is what? Peace. And how many Christians can say honestly in their relationship with God through Christ that they have peace experiential? And that's what's missing when we don't know this truth. We can never have peace. That's why some think they have to continue to do things for God. To keep the peace when it's already kept because Christ in Ephesians 2 and verse 14, he is our peace and we are already accepted. We're already placed in God's, the perfection of God's satisfaction. We're already placed there. And that love that was injured, that love and that justice was injured. So when you see love and justice when it was injured and offended, that's what came out, wrath, because that's all that could come out. Wrath, And that's what was poured out. Jesus wasn't being punished on Calvary. God's wrath was being poured out on him. Because, my God, what would have happened if it was poured on each of us individually? And it wasn't. Thank God for that. And so we have that beautiful picture of what he's done for us in Christ. Scores of scriptures we don't have time to get into, but that's why we have a purged, a cleansed conscience in Hebrews 10, 1 and 2. We have that, a cleansed conscience. And not only that, we, my, I, I, my conscience now is absolutely pure because who's the means of my purity? It's Christ. And what, I done, what I've done, what I did or what I didn't do is, is gone and not even an issue any longer it's because it's been dealt with. God's wrath consumed it. It's gone. Again, that goes into the two lots in Leviticus, the 16th chapter. So we have a pure conscience, and now with a pure conscience, we have his forgiveness procured, and to be procured means to obtain and purchase. Christ, he obtained, and and what did he do? He purchased our forgiveness, We were bought with a price in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. We're not our own. He made us in in Psalm 95 and verse 6. We are made new in him. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, when there wasn't a thing we could do, and that's why grace is always in the passive voice, always. It can enter into the middle voice. We can begin to participate with it when we experience it properly. Again, that has to do with our, with our position in Christ. And so by that, this was all done by his effort. Christ's effort and what? His alone. His alone. So now we get into the truth in Leviticus. And so when you're in Leviticus, the first chapter, this is what it says. And the Lord, in verse 1 of chapter 1, the Lord called unto Moses. Notice that? A call. We're going to finish that, hopefully, on calling and what that means. The Lord called unto Moses and spoke unto him out of the tabernacle. Where does God speak to us? Through Christ. He's the tabernacle, the true tabernacle. That's why it says in John 1 and verse 14, the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Where all the glory of God, all the promises, all the types, all prophecy fulfilled was in him as he walked the face of the earth. Went to Calvary to accomplish it and bring out the eternal mind of God, the eternal love of God, to bring that out. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, if any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you will bring your offering of the cattle, the herd, the flock, all the types of Christ. And then if his offering be a burnt-off sacrifice of the herd, let it be a male without blemish. Did Jesus Christ humanity, did he have a sin nature? He was the spotless lamb. We know that based upon Numbers, the 19th chapter in verses 1 and 2. He never needed a yoke. We need one in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, and it's designed by God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no question about that. And it's good for us to be yoked up on our youth. And that can mean you can be an 80-year-old person and never have known this truth. It's good for you in Lamentations 3.27 in that sense. But it's good to know your Creator in the day of your youth. In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1, before evil ever comes in and tests you. You imagine knowing you're born again, but still having trouble with it and not knowing all this. Then the evil one comes in and then what happens? Well, it's a male without blemish. He will offer it his own, of his own voluntary will. Do you see that? God doesn't bypass our will voluntary will. It's God's will that has to do with the call, which is by pure grace, the initiation of love. And then us passively can't do anything flat on our backs, but he never took away the free will. And I can reach up and and I can respond to the call of God as I call out for my need for a substitute because he's been propitiated and thus I am reconciled. And so this is what this goes into. It's a voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle. Notice that? To get in to the tabernacle, to get into Christ, it has to be through a burnt offering first. And so who's the door in John 10, 7 and 9? Who was the door for Israel in the Valley of Achor? In Hosea 2 and verse 15, it's a type of Christ. He's the door. He's the door. And the door's open because the Father's been propitiated now it comes up to, now we can have the we can have the message now that we've been reconciled to our substitute. We, 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 we ask you to be reconciled as his ambassadors. That's the message we have, and every one of us has that in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20, based upon 516 to 21 in that fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. And notice what it says in verse 4 of Leviticus. And he will put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. Something that only each of us could do as an individual. No priest does that. No go-between. Christ is the only priest to go between. He's our apostle and great high priest in Hebrews 3 and verse 1. He's the only one. He. There's one mediator between God and men. It is the man, Greek article, this man and no other. Christ Jesus the Lord. And that's what Job was praying for in Job 9 and verse 33. A day's meant to touch us and to touch God and bridge that gap. That immovable, that impenetrable distance that only Jesus Christ could accomplish, which he did on Calvary. Notice, each had to put their hand on the burnt offering and it will be accepted for him now to make atonement, expiation. So we are introduced here and who we are in Christ with, these, with this teaching. We're introduced into the sanctuary, into the presence of God, and learn the holiness that suits God, that, that meets his nature, character, and essence. And we have that because it's Christ in us. Christ in us. In Colossians 1.27, the hope, the guarantee of glory. And so the burnt offering comes here first because the meaning suggests by it Its numerical place is is extremely evident, and we can see that. It's the only offering which altogether goes up to God upon the altar. The altar is the cross. It's the only one. The burnt offering is more literally than, in the Hebrew, it's called the Ola, or the Holocaust. The whole consumed burnt offering. And burnt offering literally means, as it goes up to God. And that was that sweet-smelling savor. You'll see that in all the types in Leviticus. That burnt offering, it went up as a sweet savor to him, finally. He finally had a man that, that would answer his call. And, of course, Christ did that for all of us. So it is the offering that is the all, that is all. It's the typical offering. God, in the most eminent way, and correspondingly, it's his delight that's shown in it. So much so that even twice it's mentioned again. In Deuteronomy 33 and verse 10. And in Psalm 51 and verse 19. So when it says that whole, the whole burnt offering, that's the Hebrew word kahil. K-A-H-I-L. Kahil. And it's whole. Wholly consumed. (laughs) He did everything. All we do now is received as he's the initiator, the head in Colossians 1.18 and 2.19 of the body. He does it all because he did it all. And God in sanctification is making to become, right now in our present experience, in our condition on earth, what he already finished for us in eternity in, in his son, in the love of his son. He never sees us outside of that, you know. He never sees us outside of how much he loves his son. In us, in us and his son. So the altar really then derives its name from it. The fire of it, we see, was to never go out. They were to never let the fire go out of that offering, that burnt offering. It was to never, ever go out. It was never to be allowed to go out. That's in Leviticus chapter 6 and verses 12 to 13. It was never to go out. And it is, why? Because it's the basis of a peace offering. When I don't understand burnt offering, when I don't understand propitiation, which led to substitution and reconciliation, the fire of his love goes out. Now I feel like I have to do something. Or someone else has to do it for me. It's never to go out because it has to do with a peace offering. And that is what it is in proportion to which that meal, the meal offering, it's meat, but it's really the meal, and the meal was pounded and grounded down. And that's what happened to Christ on Calvary. A fine, it was very fine. And the drink offering poured out that which to be offered. Everything here, everything, as we begin to close this morning, everything marks this as indeed and in the fullest sense, the first of the offerings that go into this reality in the book of, Le- of Leviticus, in that book. So finally, we will turn, as we uh, close this this morning, we will turn to Psalm, the 40th chapter. The reason we're turning to Psalm, the 40th chapter in, in our in our Bibles and as we learn and understand these incredible truths that that were always ours, but maybe for the first time we're experiencing them in the love of who God is in Christ for us. But when we see this in this particular Psalm, Psalm 40 is the burnt offering Psalm. It's the burnt offering Psalm. And what does this teach us this morning? It teaches us that self-deliverance is indeed impossible. Self-deliverance is indeed impossible. For any besides himself in this place into which he has come is the only one that could do it. Otherwise, the miry clay would prevent any effort of this kind being effectual. Any of it being effectual. But, but, this patient sufferer, that's who Christ was, it is. He was this patient sufferer, mediates no escape other than himself. That's why it says in Psalm 40 in verse 1, this is spoken in the very spirit of Christ and what he's accomplished. I waited patiently for the Lord. Do you remember when he cried out in Matthew 27 in verse 46? Fulfilling the, the prophetic psalm of Psalm 22 in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, God had to forsake him. But did he answer his prayer? Did he? Yeah, it's you and I. And him and us. When he rose, he rose. And we rose with him in Romans 8:11. We rose right with him. Positionally. But now we're to experience it. We rose. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my call. See, there was no escaping. He had to endure that. He had to wait patiently in the midst of extreme torture and horror. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit out of the miry clay. He couldn't get away from it. It had to do with his father in propitiation. Had to do with us as, his, as to, for him to be the substitute, the only means whereby we would be reconciled, and he did. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit. The horrible pit there in the Hebrews—a pit of noise, how many bad teaching and voices. In 1 Corinthians 14, 6 through 11. And those voices, if it's not the one voice of the shepherd in John 10, 3, 14, and 27, if it's not his one voice, then the many voices come in. Those many, many voices, and it it just comes to to be a pit of noise which there's no escape. But he brought me up out of that miry clay trying to do something that he's already done. And he set my feet upon a rock that rock that Christ is in Matthew 16 and verse 18. He inclined unto me and he heard my cry. He did. He put, he took me out, set my feet upon a rock, and he established my goings. Who does that? Christ does that. And he put a new song in my mouth. It's no longer, I'm guilty, help. It's, I'm free, thank you, Lord thanksgiving, the sacrifice of praise now. We give a sacrifice back but it's of praise and thanksgiving in Hebrews 13 and verse 14 and furthermore he will join us Christ as one of us and we're one in him obviously and he's our, the means of our oneness in John the 17th chapter in verses 11, 20, 11, 21 and 22 but he joins with us singing to his father and that's brought out in Psalm 22 and verse 22 in Hebrews 2 and verse 12 we, he sings with us he sings with us. He leads us in that song. i put a new song in my mouth. From now on, that comes out as just praise because it has all to do with His glory. It's no longer corrupt communication. In Ephesians 4 and verse 29, no. He put a new song in my mouth, and then many will see that. Many will observe how I behave and will will reverence and will put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man that makes the Lord his trust, and respects not the proud, nor such as turn aside the lies, but God's thoughts in place of them. And so, Lord, many, many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done, you alone, and your thoughts, which are your thoughts alone, that you've made mine in Christ, to usward. They cannot even be reckoned up in order unto you. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. So sacrifice and offering you didn't desire. No, there are only types waiting to be fulfilled who would come and fulfill that desire and please the Father. You didn't want that. But my ears have you opened. My ears have you dug we brought that out in Exodus 21 and verse 6 brought out again in Hebrews the 10th chapter verses 5 right to the end of that chapter but specifically through Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 to 14 brought out very beautifully there then you didn't desire that my ears have you opened in terms of obedience to become the burnt offering and then by being a burnt offering there could be a sin offering (laughs) a sin offering have you not required, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me did you, did we hear that the whole volume of this book has to do with who Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father, to the outworking and power of God, the Holy Spirit. I delight to do your will, I finished it I, I did, I finished it, and john four thirty four was my meat, John twenty verse seventeen. Yea, your law was within my heart, very, right in within me. So the theme here, the very theme here that we have is that one perfect obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, which set aside, which set aside and replaces all the sacrifices of that legal covenant, replaces them all. He fulfilled the law. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Romans 10 and verse 4. Hebrews chapter 7. The law made nothing complete or perfect in Hebrews 7 and verse 19. But a bringing in of a better hope did by the which will we draw nigh to God. The fulfilled will of Christ that fulfilled the Father and he brought us with him. The obedience. And then where? It's therefore in Christ alone that the believer finds acceptance with God in Ephesians 1.6, having a father in John 20 and verse 17, the obedience whereby many are made righteous. That brings out the teaching in Romans 5 and verse 19 and 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. Many were all made righteous? No, but many were. But whosoever would believe in him. In John 1.12, he gave the power to become the sons of God. And this, though essentially, is what all these offerings speak of, is what the burnt offering always brings before us. And we're going to close with this. The sin offering shows the place of distance and wrath from God necessitated by the holiness of God. If atonement is to be wrought by it, to be finished, there's no question about that. We see that. The trespass offering presents the thought of restitution. The amends made by it to God, to the government of God. And the peace offering dwells upon the effect which was the breach impaired. Peace made. The result is communion with God that's to be enjoyed. This brings out Romans chapter 5 all the way to the 11th verse and to finish it all the way to the twenty first verse. And we see that Christ is at peace in Ephesians 2, verse 14, that peace that became ours through the blood of his cross in Colossians 1 and verse 20. Our standing is based upon that, which is our position in Romans 5, 1 and 2. But the burnt offering alone exhibits the voluntariness, the very voluntary will of Jesus Christ of of himself being that offering, it was the perfection, the perfection of the sacrifice in all its inner reality, the full trial of Christ's whole life, right up until Calvary and through it. The full trial according to God's divine holiness, the offerer, Christ himself, being in view as well as the offering of which he presented, which is himself. And that sweet savor resulting. It is this, the offering which fulfills the purpose of the altar and gives it its character as the altar of burnt offering, being indeed what? That that goes up to God continually. So, Father, thank you so much for your love and the truth of the burnt offering. We thank you and praise you so very much, Lord. We have so much to be thankful for. We thank you and praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.